Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and this is Thought by Thought Healing, where I talk about everything related to chronic pain and chronic symptoms and why, when we understand the brain, we can reverse those symptoms. I personally come at this from a Christian perspective, so if that's important to you, then you should check out my website, which is thoughtbythoughthealing.com. But I also interview experts in the field and hear their take and their experience in their professional world. And so today I had the chance to interview Charlie Merrill. And so I'm going to read you his bio, but I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. We essentially talk about him as a physical therapist, and we're going to talk about going from avoidance and moving into movement and what that looks like and how to do that um, while understanding validating that can be a um, really courageous and process that requires some bravery and let's see what else do we talk about we talk about some reasons that you might be thinking that are the cause of your pain so what are we blaming the pain on and i ask him some specific things that physical therapists might in the traditional setting might think that is the cause of the pain and he gives his perspective with um, the understanding of pain neuroscience and what actually might be the true cause of your symptoms and your pain. So here's a little bit about him. Charlie Merrill is a physical therapist and the founder of Merrill Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He has synthesized treatment of the mind, body, mind and body for over 20 years to support people in returning to a high level of performance in their lives. In his practice, Charlie combines traditional hands-on manual therapy and movement with a novel mind-body approach to treat a wide range of clients, including some of the best runners, cyclists, rock climbers, and crossfitters in the world. Charlie co-created the course Beyond Pain Education with Dr. Howard Schubiner to educate and mentor clinicians who are traditionally body-oriented how to transition towards a more psychosocially informed approach to pain and function. He's about to launch a 12-week immersive course for athletes for athletes looking to unlearn and overcome chronic symptoms. This is called Unlearning Pain for Athletes and will launch in October. He's a content creator appearing on podcasts. His channel, uh, he has a channel on Instagram and YouTube and is active on social media supporting people in pain. By the way, I follow him. You should definitely follow him. It's amazing. Charlie is actively involved in clinical research, which we need, and consults in the digital health technology space, as well as on the team at Lynn Health. He also serves on the medical advisory board for the Better Mind Center. Charlie is a lifelong competitive athlete in a variety of disciplines and lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife and three teenage daughters. So I know you're going to enjoy this. I know you're going to grow. There's a lot of nuggets in here that help you to just think about your pain and what might be the source of your pain, both looking at pain neuroscience and emotionally and what might be the underlying cause of that. So without further ado, I give you Charlie Merrill. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, Today, I have the honor of having Charlie Merrill with me. So Charlie, how are you? And thanks for being here. I'm good, Jen. Thanks for hosting me. I, as you know, I love talking about chronic symptoms and chronic pain and all, everything that has to do with that. So I appreciate yes. the opportunity to chat with you about it. Yes, we we definitely share that common passion. So um, let's just dive in and do a quick, how did you go from traditional PT, which I happen to know is your history, um, mm-hmm. to doing mind-body physical therapy? Yeah. Um, Probably the first thing to know is I was very uh, traditionally trained as a manual physical therapist. 
And for those of you who don't know what that means, it's learning how to fix bodies with my hands, right? Like this is my, this is my training. And I was really excited about it. I wanted to learn how to manipulate joints and needle trigger points and, you know, fat, do fascial release and problem solve biomechanics and movement problems. So um, probably a good place to start is to know that I was like steeped in that because I, it was, I was so passionate about it and I was mentored by people that were so good at it. Mm. And of course I understand, you know, better why they were good at it and how that works now. Mm. But after going through, you know, hours and thousands of dollars of continuing education training, which, which I still find valuable. I'm sure we'll, we can talk about that. I, I realized just something was missing and I happened to practice in a town where there are a lot of really good physical therapists, right? Boulder, Colorado is a very active place. There are a lot of talented clinicians here. And yet I started to, to, to realize that my, for some reason, my, my practice stood out and I, I know, I knew it wasn't because I was the best manual therapist in the world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good at what I do, but there were certainly people that were better than me. And I started to understand that part of why I was successful was because of my therapeutic alliance skills, right? My relational skills, my ability yeah. to listen and bear witness and, and be with people and connect. And when I realized that was like the secret sauce or sort of a, an ingredient in, in why people were getting better. And I combined that with the fact that I just felt like something was missing with all these manual therapy and exercise modalities that I was using. There were just some people that weren't responding to that the way I expected them to. Because when it worked, it really worked. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. But when it didn't work, I was like, you know, what am I missing here? And I'm a, I'm a, you know, as a clinician, I kind of feel like I owe it to myself and to my patients to just continue to say, what's next? What's the next logical step? If I'm really being a critical thinker. And for me, this was, this was clear that I needed to, to start thinking differently. And so as soon as I discovered that there was this massive paradigm shift in the science, in the neuroscience, and we needed to consider more than just the body, right? We needed to consider that every, everybody regardless of whether they have an injury or they've had surgery or they're just dealing with years of chronic pain, everybody's pain needs to be treated through the body, the psychology and the social realities of that person. So once I understood that, I was like, I have to, I have to do a deep dive into this. And, and it, it just started, it started, everything started to make more sense, right? The things that I found that I was missing just I was like, oh, now I understand why this person wasn't responding the way I, you know, the way I was expecting them to. And now I understand what I need to do to intervene in a new way. Um, and it's been a 10 year, like, like wrestling with the content and an unlearning okay. and like a massive unlearning of everything that I thought I knew, which is why I have a lot of times, you know, compassion and for, for my colleagues who also grew up in this model, like it's a lot to ask a clinician to make this shift. Um, even though it's the most rewarding work in the world, as you know, yeah. it is It is not easy to do. Yeah, um, to make that rewarding. transition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it took you It took you 10 years to move from the traditional model to, real, to where you are is what you're saying. It's kind of been a journey of 10 years. Yeah, and it's ongoing. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, like you're constantly learning 
um, mm-hmm. as you do more and more of this. And and the, the the science is really clear. I think like the neuroscience is excellent, but yeah. but how we translate that to clinical practice is still really emerging. And um, there's a lot of opportunity to get really creative with it. And so in that way, I'm I'm w- learning with my clients, right? Where, where it's it's a and when I came out of school, it was very much like I'm in charge. You come to me. I know it's wrong. I fix you, and and on you go, right? Yeah. And and now we know that that that's not how it works at all. Like when I see someone, I I don't have any of the answers at the start. So it's a very collaborative process between my clients and I mm-hmm. to, to sort of learn and, and understand why why they hurt and then the solutions similarly are really collaborative and so part of the learning is like everybody's different and you one of the reasons I love the work so much is because you get to be really creative yeah. with coming up with strategies and solutions that are very specific to that person I, I really love that collaborative lens that you're using um I think that's just really important, especially because we're trying to empower them, right? Like that's the the whole idea is to empower them. And if we leave them out of the whole cycle of how do you heal yourself? Well, we've done the opposite of that. So um, put, putting a pin in that for a second, I'm guessing there's also, while you're starting to work with people, there's also some education pieces that you're trying to plant or um pain neuroscience information that you want them to know? What are some of the things that kind of is uh, underlying your goal to help them to know that maybe they didn't know before walking into a mind-body physical therapist session? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the, the, the psychoeducation process alone is such an emergent process. I call it like an act of, um, of improv sometimes. I, I've, I've, I've wrestled whether I should be using a script and just like doing the same thing with uh-huh. everybody, but I've found that it's, it's more effective if I decide person by person, what, what nugget or what nuggets of information they need the most. Right. For some people, they've, they've been down this road for years and they already know a lot. So then I'm like, well, what are they missing? Like, where are the holes? Yeah. What, what along the way did they not get? Um, and how can we fill that for other people? You're starting from the beginning and I'm a physical therapist. So they sometimes don't even know what they're getting when they come in. And I'll have to say, how much do you know about what I do? Like you're expecting to Mm -hmm. see a physical therapist. And, and so I have to start there so I can be really sensitive to not just blow up their whole worldview. Yeah. But I I often start with, you know, all pain a hundred percent of the time regardless of the cause is constructed and experienced in the brain. Yeah. Right. We're not saying it's all in your head, but it is all in your brain. That's a fact. That's like gravity or the, or the world being round. Right. You can't, you can, I've said this before, like this isn't a time in history when we need to buy in. This is just the science. And yet there is a paradigm shift here, right? Because we haven't, we haven't run our medical system on that paradigm, right? So, so it is new emerging information. So it probably takes a minute, especially if you're having patients that are, uh, that don't know what you do. I'm guessing that's kind of a big hop to realize scientifically, my brain is producing this. Yes. No, my hand is. Yeah, but uh, the reason I start there is because I find it really important to normalize that right from the beginning. Again, regardless of whether you have a real injury or you've had surgery or you're dealing with primary symptoms, as I call them, which is, you know, this sort of 
brain-driven pain in the absence of a body problem. Um, it's it's all it's always the brain. This is not a dualistic where it's either your body or your brain. And this is a really important clarifying point because otherwise people get stuck in this sort of binary or this dualistic idea that it, we have to decide which one it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's always the brain. It's always the brain that's in charge of every sensation that you've ever had in your life. Yeah. Right. And so I, I think if, if we can start, if we can get aligned on that point, then we can have these discussions about, well, then how do we think about the body, right? How do we think about movement? How do we think about the value of manual therapies? Um, if we're looking through this brain-oriented lens, we might be doing a lot of the same interventions. We might be talking about movement. We might still be doing manual therapies, but we're doing it through this sort of biopsychosocial model rather than just focusing on fixing bodies. Yeah. And, and, um, First of all, just you saying um, that the the brain is what produces all of our sensations. Um, I I've been running this podcast for I think almost two years now, and still just hearing it, it's just so stunning and cool, and I love it mm-hmm. so much. Um, it gives us so much influence and and understanding, and it gives me a ton of curiosity just for life and what I'm experiencing. But that was a little bit of a tangent. Um, so here you are, you have these, you have these patients and you are helping them understand the brain's role in, in pain neuroscience and their pain. And the goal, what it what is the goal? Why does it matter that they understand this? What are we, what are you trying to what's the mind shift that we're trying to have in these conversations for people who are trying to heal? And, and I'm assuming that we're heading towards talking about people whose brain is producing the pain in the absence of a structural issue, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question like, does it matter? Right? Like it's still pain. All pain is real. Yeah. Um, are we just changing the language? Does it just make things more confusing? I, I think it matters because we have such a strong cultural bias towards pain equals a body problem. Yeah. Pain equals tissue damage. There's there. And that creates so much fear for people that that there's something that their their body is vulnerable, right? Like it pokes at so many parts of our identity and our ego. And and mm. so I think there's a vulnerability that comes from running this narrative that there's something wrong with my tissues. I feel fragile in some way. And I see we see this play out in people's lives, right? Like they they stop doing things. Um, the world gets very small. And so I think the reason it matters is because it allows them to reconceptualize why they're having symptoms from this is dangerous. This has consequences for my life in the future. Mm-hmm. The anxiety that comes with that to like, oh, this, this might be okay. Right. I always say like, this is the best news ever because the nervous system is so plastic and it's changing every second. And so this is the most hopeful diagnosis you could possibly get in that way. You just you talking about the uh, the fear of consequences in the future brings me back to four years ago, and I, I I could just barely walk, and I remember my dad saying, "Let me get your let me get." I was visiting for Thanksgiving. He said, "Why don't Why don't I get your food for you? Um, we don't know how many f- um, steps you have left in life." Oh. So he's trying to be kind and save me steps, right? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. You're right. I, 
I should probably save these last steps. And so that that pain like sets us into this anxiety of what in what else am I going to lose in the future because of this this pain and what's wrong with my body. So yeah, yeah. I that a lot. What a salient memory. I mean, it really is like it's emotional even just to think about yeah. you know, the 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 impact that 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 has when you think that your body's failing you, right? In some yeah. way. And that's I think that's what that's what the current narrative pokes at. And, and the alternative, right, what, what I then try to shift to is the, the nice thing about, about shifting the, the focus to your brain is that A, your brain is really plastic, right? It can change and it's always changing all the time. And B, there's nothing wrong with your brain. Right. I mean, this is, a, your brain's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's working just fine. It's, it's thank you brain, right? Like it's, it's, it's trying to protect you. It's wisdom. It's trying to send you a helpful message. We just need to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you unpack that more? Because um, I just know for a lot of people that we're like, well, my brain, th- then what's wrong with my brain? If it's sending me this pain and there's nothing wrong with my back or my feet or whatever, wherever I'm experiencing this pain, um, but it's, but it is sending a message. It is asking for a change, but it's not always in making our life smaller, right? What, what, what are we looking at here? What, what are questions people can ask themselves, I guess? Yeah. The brain, the brain doesn't speak English, right? And <laughs> pain just happens to be a really good way to get our attention, especially people that are really active, you know, it's the best way to, to scare us that something's mm. not okay. And so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions that I encourage people to ask and, um, sometimes there's value in just seeing pain for what it is, you know, the, the, the basic somatic tracking exercises where you're just reconceptualizing what the pain means. You're not trying to make meaning from it. You're not trying to gain wisdom. You're not trying to say, what does this mean about how I need to grow in my life? But I really feel like that step is important. I just had a client this morning who's, you know, dealt with pelvic pain for over five years and it's taken a while to shift belief for them that, that, uh, that this isn't their body. And as we were talking, I said, you know, if it were me, I'd want to have some alternative explanation. I wouldn't easily be able to drop this idea that there's something wrong with my body unless I had something to replace it with. Mm-hmm. Like something that like, why for these five years have I been suffering this much and the effects it's had on my life? There, there has to, for me, there would have to be a good reason that at some point I would understand and it, we don't want to force it. We don't want to rush it. We don't want to make up stories. It has to feel right. Like, you know, when, when, when you get people to that point and, and it, they just like feel it in their heart, they're like that, that just makes so much sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the questions are around like, why this symptom? Why did your brain choose this symptom to try to protect you? Mm. There can be a lot of interesting conversations around that question. Mm-hmm. Um, why now? Like, what, what is it about this timing? Yeah. What is it about when the symptoms started? That's often a really big clue. I've had clinicians that I've trained in courses have aha moments after a decade of having pain. Right. I, I still continue to have them even after yeah. being healed for years. Yeah. I bet. So what's the meaning of like, if there wasn't an injury when that started, what, what, what was going on in your life at that point? Um, why was that a significant moment? Um, and then what's going on in your life now? Yeah. And why are the symptoms continuing to persist, right? Are some of those same people still in your life? Are some of the same things going on? Are there some similar themes? 
And do those themes tie back to, to your past, to your childhood, to your family of origin, to essentially to your past conditioning and your past programming and your personality traits. Right. Right. Um, and that, and that's where we try to dig a little bit to figure out like, why does this make sense? Right. So pivoting a little bit, um, the, the direction you just went is the, or that I asked you a question and we went there is that, that, that tends to be the direction that I am inclined to discuss all the time. I love those conversations. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, um, also the, the fear that there's something wrong with me, um, or the fear of the pain, either one itself that, um, that causes me and others to avoid. So, pain comes on and now I'm avoiding using my feet. I'm not walking. I'm not doing the sports I love. Um, and, and I know that's a passion of yours is, um, mm-hmm. athletes, but, um, mm-hmm. can we talk about the avoidance that's happening and how to go from that place to movement essentially? Cause that's a really scary step to take. Um, when we have this conditioned response, we are, we know we're going to, we know we're yeah. going to experience pain. Yeah. Um, it's primal. I mean, I, I really think the avoidance, right, is really primal. I don't think we're often choosing it. It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or that's how we grew up. That's what we learned. Or that's what the doctor said or the PT said, right? right. Um, so it's it's logical. It makes a lot of sense in the short term. We, we know that like after surgery and after injury, movement is the best thing for healing. When someone has a total hip replacement, they're moving within 24 hours. Yeah. They're on the feet, right? Was that always um, the case or is that kind of newer information newer, it's newer yeah. newer science for sure that we know yeah. that the value of movement is really important for lots of things i mean there's a, there's a list of dozens of things that um for mm-hmm. for our physical and psychological well-being that movement is helpful for but it, it's it's natural to like shut that down and most people will try that first right they'll just try to rest and like let's just see if that helps and sometimes it helps but most of the time it doesn't and i often say to people like um especially when we can't identify something going on in their lives that's really stressful. Like I have a lot of people where they either, they're not aware, they don't want to talk about it, uh, about the other things that are going mm-hmm. on in their life. And I'm like, you know, the fear of the pain itself is enough. Yeah. Like in and of itself to keep pain rolling. So if we have no other stresses in your life, just your orientation towards the pain is enough, right? Mm-hmm. But But if I use fear in any direction, I try to minimize fear as much as I can. But if I use fear in any direction in my practice, it's to scare people away from resting. <laughs> it's, it's to scare people back into moving their bodies, right? If Interesting. You yeah. If you don't move your body, mm-hmm. there will be consequences. Yeah. You will continue to suffer. Your tissues will be less healthy, right? The world's going to get smaller. You're going to have less capacity. We, you know, m- movement is the way out. Okay. But it's so scary, Charlie. How do you help people? How do you help people? That's interesting. How, how do we um, encourage a mindset that um, gets them from that place of avoidance to um, to moving? And, I, and I'm thinking of specifically like kind of two groups of people. Um, one is I'm going to call it like recurrent or persistent condition pain. So um, every time you lean over, you feel pain versus another group of people who are in chronic pain and they can't avoid 
the pain. Like it's just the movement that causes their pain is part of just living um, in general. Do you see like a different way of exposing movement to those two different groups? Yeah, there, there's probably some nuance there. I mean, I think it starts with people really understanding um, what happens to the nervous system when we stop moving. And it's probably a lot to go into without like a visual. I can share with you a couple of videos I made with my conceptualization around how graded exposure works. Um, the, the, the Noe group in Australia does this great Twin Peaks um, model that I think is a great visual for how when people are in pain, their capacity is low and how we have to be moving into the pain. We have to give people permission to move into the pain for anything to change. If you stay below the pain and you avoid it, it tends to stay right where it is. Yeah. And so how do we get it to go back to looking like it did before you had pain or injury or surgery? So maybe you can share those videos in the show notes so people yeah. can, uh, That'd be great. can benefit from that. I think first, you know, helping people understand um, why movement's so important uh, to the process uh, so that they have confidence. The second thing is ruling out the body. I spend a lot of time with people evaluating the body and busting myths and showing them, showing them that they're okay, how strong they are, how flexible they are. Mm. You know, if, if someone's on my table for 30 minutes and I go through all my tests and we get to the end and as a physical therapist, I'm like, there's not that much to treat here, right? Everything looks pretty good. What I see is that you're a bit deconditioned. And you have some of the adaptive change that goes along with that. That's from you not moving. Yeah. And the way we address those things is by getting you moving again. So there's like a there's like a green light permission giving really early on in the process that I think is really important, really valuable. And then hearing people's doubts and questions and and fears about, okay, Charlie, I understand, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And allowing them to to vent those anxieties is is important. Part of the process for for a lot of people once they understand that this this first group that you're talking about they a lot of them just kind of run with it you know and and they, they can do some of it themselves and they need a little bit of support for the other group oftentimes i need to do it with them and i need to as i say like lend my confidence to them for mm -hmm. a little while like they can rent my confidence and i always say like this room that i'm in is the magic room because people will do things in my room that they never thought they could do. And then they leave and they like lose the ability. I'm like, my room isn't magic. It's just because we're doing it together and you feel safe. And yeah. And my my attitude towards movement is really positive and I'm encouraging and I'm, I'm scaling it for them to a level that, or I'm cueing them in a way where they feel really safe when they're doing it. And I think there's value in that for the, for the short, in the short term until they can take that confidence and start to build on it themselves. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So for those people who are, are, let's say they're doing this, let's say they're doing this on their own and they're watching. Um, uh, what, what is the expectation around pain? Should they expect that now, you know, um, they've just been informed about pain neuroscience, realize that the body is safe, nothing wrong with my brain. It's in a threat response. Um, should they expect the first time they do that movement for there to not be pain? Um, no. Great. Let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to finish your thought before I jump in? 
Um, I, I think I just wanted you to say that because I think there's a misconception sometimes even in mind body medicine that um, for, for self healers that, um, that if I go to do this graded exposure, incremental exposure, that I'm not going to have pain. And then when there is pain, I'm like, well, well, that means it must be structural then, right? Question mark. Um, so I just want to talk about this openly so that people can have the right expectation as they do this work. And and yeah, let's go. Let's yeah, go. There, there, there are people that, like that first group you were talking about. There are people where they, I tell, you know, they hear from me that they're okay. They see it when I evaluate them. They they understand how pain works and they go and and they do great. So I, I don't love rules. I don't want to tell people like you, you will definitely have pain. You have right. to have, right. But that's just the reality. A lot of the time, like you, you, as you reconceptualize what the pain means, you almost can't avoid it. So by definition, and you'll see this in these videos I referenced, you have to be bumping up against the pain in a thoughtful way with a lot of reassurance and a lot of confidence and a lot of permission. I love that bumping up, say that again, bumping up to the pain with what did you reassurance. Say? confidence, permission, yeah. and a new mindset, right? And sometimes sometimes a new intention or um, putting your attention on something different. This is why as a physical therapist, like I could cue someone to squat in a new way. Like they come in, they squat, their knee hurts, right? Yeah. And then I, I cue them to, to focus on squatting in a different way. Let's say they push their knees out more or they initiate from their hips instead of their knees or they put their hands out and to their brain, it feels totally different. It's a different neural pathway, right? It, it, it's not pain-free when I teach them because their knees are in a different position necessarily, or because their body's in a different position or because they're sequencing it differently. It's different because their brain doesn't recognize the movement pattern. It's novel, right? Uh. And so they have a different experience because of that novelty because they feel safer, because they have something different to focus on. And so we've interrupted that old prediction of this movement pattern equals this result. And we've in introduced a new movement pattern. And it's really easy to say, well, that's just biomechanics, Charlie. It's like, okay, maybe some of it is biomechanics, but most of it is the change in prediction. So what I hear you saying this is the way I love to to take mind body statements and and make them offensive. I I I feel like you are saying that form. Um, now now I'm gonna water it down a little bit. Uh, that form has less of a role in um, pain than we traditionally think. Yes, yes. A person's belief and context and expectations and what their brain has learned over time is more predictive of pain than their movement quality. That's true. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that I'm hearing you say you do is when somebody uh, goes to reintroduce something that causes pain, you're having them do it in a novel way. That's just slightly different. That's interrupting the, the, the routine standard way that you've been, they have been um, using their body um, just to to make a change in in the in the brain and how they're thinking about it and approaching it is just slightly different that uses different neural pathways. Yeah, and we could say that the the muscles are behaving differently. There's more range of movement. The muscle powers more. The the 
the activation of muscles is different, that there's better stability, there's better precision or balance. You know, we could theoretically, we can measure those things, but they're all the result of the brain's perception of safety and danger. So those motor outputs, those movement metrics, biomechanics yeah. actually change as people start to feel psychologically safe to move. So yeah, if we introduce, you know, PTs historically are very prescriptive. You have to do this movement exactly this way. Don't mess it up. You have to do it perfectly. This many reps every day. They're yeah. often super boring. Nobody wants to do them. Yeah. Okay. People don't do them. Uh-huh. Right. And, and th- that's just more fear, right? Like by definition, when you're prescriptive, it causes more fear. So mm. we, what we should be doing then is, is using more functional movement patterns that are, that are novel, that are fun, that are playful, that are interesting that are, um, God forbid, the person gets to choose them, right? They're collaborative. Mm-hmm. So they, they fit with that person's interests. Like mm-hmm. I use dance a lot. Every, like universally, people love to dance, right? Absolutely. And most people don't dance. And so what a cool way to interrupt the predictive pattern of, of whatever they're doing now is causing pain. Well, why don't you try to go dance and see how you do? Put on music. It's novel. It's fun, playful. It gets people out of their heads. And so um, non-prescriptive movement, general exercise that the person's choosing, they have autonomy, they have self-efficacy. Um, mm-hmm. I lean on those types of things a lot to, mm-hmm. to get people back in their bodies again. I, I love this conversation. Okay, so now, so I wanna, because of the subject um, that we're in right now, I just kind of wanna dive into some, I have a list here that I've written down of um, some, uh, traditional things that we blame our pain on. And so if you could um, either validate or um, debunk some of these, um, I would be curious to hear your thoughts if that's all right with you. Of course. So, okay. Yeah. Let's start with um, weak muscles are the cause of my pain. Okay. Um, with, that That's a hard no from the start, the research has mostly debunked this. I mean, I'm a very strong athlete, right? No one would look at me and say, oh, Charlie, you're weak. You know, I can deadlift 350 pounds. I can run a five minute mile. My core is really strong, right? Okay. I still have pain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then, and then there are other people who aren't, who have weak cores and they're deconditioned and they don't, they're not oriented towards exercise, which is fine. You know, there's yeah. no judgment in that, but they don't have pain. So this false correlation has gotten people into a lot of trouble. And I hear this over and over again from people. My PT says, I just need to get stronger. My doctor says I need to get stronger. Yeah. And, I, and I have to look them in the eye and say, you're not going to strengthen your way out of pain. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Because like, if we could like armor up and then suddenly we're like, now, I don't want to say that there's not value in being strong, right? There is, from a performance perspective, mm-hmm. as an athlete, as a person in your life, there is value to having fitness, right? Like yeah. if I slip on the ice and my balance is really good, my reaction time is good, I might catch myself from breaking a bone. If I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to take it in a slightly different direction, but I, and there's also something about getting stronger that makes you feel more powerful. And that um, 
for me has helped just turn down the fear a little bit. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Um, so again, like is getting strong one variable? Yes, but it's a very weak correlate of pain. That's probably a, a better way to say it instead of just throwing it out. Okay. The psychological confidence you get from pain is very important. The, the information that you feed your brain through your body from the environment gives the brain clarity about where you end and where the world begins. And your yeah. brain likes that. Your brain likes that. So it's going to be less likely to turn on pain when it's exposed to something in the environment that feels a little bit dangerous if you're in a certain position, right? So if you if I expose myself to lots of variety in my movement, I call it the movement vocabulary, my brain's going to recognize things as safe Yeah. when I find myself there. Right. Um, but it has nothing to do with me being strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People always ask me, why do you work out? And I'm like, cause it, cause it, cause of how it makes me feel. <laughs> that's, that's the, the one and only reason. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And we also, we also know that the, the, I won't call it the discomfort, but the feeling of physical of work during exercise by definition reduces the emotional discomfort of the things going on in our life. Right. As the physical effort goes up, the emotional loading goes down typically. Yeah. And that's why, that's why we love it. That's why yeah. we seek it out. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Um, plantar fasciitis. Plantar chronic. Fasciitis. chronic. Yeah. yeah. So plantar fasciitis, um, you know, it's a real condition. You can have mm-hmm. an active inflammation in your plantar fascia where the, the fascia attaches to the heel Um, that's one reason that people have heel pain. There are many reasons that people have heel pain. Um, some people call pain in the ball of their foot plantar fasciitis or pain in their arch plantar fasciitis. So that's a very specific diagnostic term that happens sometimes, but it's, it's very rare. We know that any type of tendonitis or inflammatory tissue condition that starts out acute when it turns chronic by definition, the brain is lighting up in a different way. Now it's learned right? Now it's no longer an inflammatory problem. Generally, it's a problem that needs movement. It needs blood flow. It needs, it needs reactivation. That tissue needs to be more, needs to be um, exposed to movement again. So this is back to the green light for movement, right? The inflammatory phase of plantar fasciitis is typically not very long. After you've been in that situation for a few months, you're starting to transition into chronicity. And we would call that plantar fasciosis, which is- Instead of itis, which is infl- inflammation, osis is just a condition where the tissue isn't as healthy. So it doesn't have the blood fl- as much blood flow theoretically, right? It's not as strong. It's not as robust. Um, it's not as elastic. It's not storing energy as well. And so this is why people shift from getting cortisone shots to getting stem cells and PRP and prolotherapy, because we're trying to stimulate healing in those cases. Now, that that assumes that healing hasn't already happened, right? So I'm talking kind of in the old model. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm just curious, v- visibly, the itis versus the otis. Osis. Um, osis. Itis versus the osis. Um, can you can you see that difference in the in the foot, the inflammation? Um, sometimes it's more usually like something you can feel when you palpate, when you, when you touch the area, it's a certain, it presents in a certain way when you examine a person. Um, 
usually the itis is due to an injury, okay. right? Something that happened, a sudden increase in training volume as a runner, you stepped on a rock, you jumped off something and landed hard, right? It, you can see why the tissue would be inflamed. Yeah. The osis condition is more of that chronic ongoing thing. So I think it's just interesting for people to know that, that at the, at the, even if, even if we're not talking about pain science and the brain, we know that the, the diagnosis shifts from an inflammatory process to more one that needs to be treated with movement and exercise. So just to give people permission to like start to use their body again, instead of being in a boot and immobilizing and wearing Hoka shoes all the time and, you know, mm -hmm. trying to protect the foot when you're three, four months down the road, that's when you need to start thinking differently about how you're treating this condition. Now, most heel pain, the majority of heel pain is neither of those things. There might be some deconditioning. There might be some adaptive change in the body that that's going to benefit from movement. But for most people, there's something else driving their symptoms, stress in their life, fear, yeah. emotions, right? Something else is not working for them. Something that, it, that ties to their running, right? What's, what's the reason they're running? Is it encumbered? Are they doing it for the wrong reasons? Is it, has it become stressful? Has the joy drained out of it? Yeah. And when the brain starts to feel this subconsciously, it's going to create pain to take that thing away from you. Yeah. yeah. It's trying to protect you, right? But it's not because there's something wrong with your plantar fascia. It's not because there's something wrong with your heel. There's no bone spur. There's no fracture. There's no tendinosis. It's just, it's real pain in your heel. But on exam, it doesn't present like plantar fasciitis. Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely identifying with this conversation because that was one of my diagnoses. And now, like looking back, there there was nothing. I I don't think I had any actual. Um, I know that I can't ever say this word, but I'm going to do it. Plantar fasciitis. Did I say it right? Okay, nice that's work. been like three years in the coming. Just so you know, nailed it. <laughs> um. I, I don't think I ever had that as a diagnosis, even, or as a, an actual, uh, issue in my foot. Um, I think the whole time it was, it was just my body trying to get me out of certain situ situations. So, um, that's a really, that's a helpful conversation, I think for listeners, but also just for me to understand what, what was going on there. Um, another thing, high arches. That was another thing that was thrown at me and I'm sure other people that the reason for my foot pain was high arches. Does high arches ever cause um, pain? Um, I, I don't like rules, so I'm not going to say never. Okay. But, okay. But if you go to the doctor with high arches, they're going to blame your high arches. If you go to the doctor with flat arches with really flexible feet, they're going to blame that. Okay. So we, we get in this habit of blaming both sides of the continuum. And as a mm -hmm. clinician, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. If the person's foot being too flat and flexible is the reason plantar fasciitis starts, then wouldn't a high arch be protective? Right. Or vice versa, right? It doesn't, this is when you start to see, when you start learning about mind-body medicine and you understand um, how pain works, mm -hmm. the, the, these things start to fall apart. Right? Yeah. They, it, it, it makes sense why those explanations aren't effective for yeah. people, yeah. right? We can, we, we can say, okay, your arches are high, your feet are stiff. 
They don't absorb shock from the ground as well, right? This is old school biomechanics, right? So let's get your foot loosened up and let's work on this. And, and it doesn't work or your foot's really flexible and it pronates a lot. And so we need to get supportive shoes and we need to get you more strong and stabilize you. It doesn't work. Does it ever work? Um, if it works, it's because that was a small part of it. Okay. Maybe, but mostly it's because the person believes it will work. Because if I, as a clinician, come up with a compelling story and the person feels safe in that and they feel like they have some control yep. to do that, Yep. The brain, the brain's going to turn off pain. Yeah. We haven't even touched the emotional content. We haven't even touched the stuff that's probably what was driving it in the first place, but we've reduced enough fear by giving the person an explanation for why they hurt and giving them some solutions that the brain says, cool, we can turn that symptom off. Yeah. It feels safe enough. Mm -hmm. Right. But the, yes. the problem is it often comes back, right? Because mm -hmm. we haven't gotten to the root cause. Right. Um, but you know how this works for most people. It just sticks around for months and years. And plantar fasciitis is kind of an, a funny condition, similar to like frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis. Okay. There, there are so many stories about people having it for a really long period of time. And then one day they wake up and it's gone. Yeah. It's like, it's over. And they're like, what the heck? I've had heel pain for two years and it just disappeared. It yeah. doesn't make any sense until you start to understand the brain. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. It. And then you have to ask the question, did it, did the symptom imperative just show up and now they're in pain someplace else? Or did the stressor get resolved and we're feeling safer in the way we were operating in life? Yeah. Could be I, any of those things, depending on the person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in, let's, I am stealing this, this straight up stealing this one from the interview you just did with Curable um, when Christy Yupi asked you about inflammation. And I just want you to talk about that here because it was so good. Um, can you explain macro, micro inflammation and, and what we should or should not be worried about when we are talking about inflammation? Um, yeah. What should we be worried about? I like how you asked that question. I, I like to not worry about either of them because they're both normal. They're both the cost of doing business, right? Macroinflammation is when you sprain your ankle or you hurt something. It's clear you injured something or after surgery and it swells up. This is part of the healing cascade. This is normal. This is healthy. This is, as I say, it's like the construction crew is in your joint or around your body, like repairing things. And we want that to happen. It takes up space. It's sensitive. It's your brain's way of protecting you again, right? It's important to say that the brain is choosing to turn on inflammation. Mm -hmm. the, brain, the brain initiates that cascade that leads to swelling. And swelling is hard for people because it's, it's something they can see. And so different from pain, they think, oh, well, this is definitely real. Right. People love the word real. Like all pain is real. All inflammation is real. Yeah. Right. But the inflammation is that cascade is initiated by the brain, which is getting information from the body that surgery happened or that an ankle was sprained or that a shoulder was dislocated. Yeah. And so it's turning on inflammation to try to protect you for a short period of time so it can start the repair process. So right. we, we know we don't want to shut that down, especially in the, the acute phase in the first few days. Things like Arnica and there are other remedies you can use to get relief other than anti-inflammatories. So we don't inhibit that process too much. Microinflammation is truly just mm. our run rate of daily inflammation in our body. It's the what helps us repair at night when we're sleeping. 
right? It's when our the the work from the day sort of gets gets uh, refreshed. So the next day you're you're ready to go again, okay. and that level can go up and down. If if either of them are dangerous, it's the micro kind, because the micro kind, if you're sleeping poorly, eating poorly, stressed to the hilt, watching five hours of news every day, scared of your pain, anxious, depressed, right? All if you yeah. if your feels like it's overwhelming. Um, then your microinflammation is going to be high and that's what can in time lead to disease. So if you want to manage something, it's managing those variables that lead to chronic elevated levels of microinflammation. I'm not talking about like you did a hard workout or you didn't sleep well for a few nights or you partied and you drank too much, right? That's, that's acute microinflammation. That's fine. I'm talking ongoing microinflammation. Yeah. And a lot of people say, you know, they had a lab test and their inflammation markers are high. Um, when I look at that, I see a, I, I see a snapshot. Is there, is there something to be spoken about regarding that? Yeah, we can measure, right. We can measure lots of things. We, as a physical therapist, I can measure lots of changes in the body. The question is, do they matter? Are they important? Or are they just normal? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're measuring microinflammation, uh, the markers of microinflammation, you're right. You're just getting a snapshot. Did you not sleep all the night before? Did you not eat well? Did you drink too much? Does the doctor's you... office stress you out? Does the doctor's office stress you out? So if we can measure like, you know, with blood sugar, you have an A1C, which is your six month measurement of your blood sugar. So if we had that for inflammation, we could say, oh, look, you've been chronically inflamed for six months. Let's talk about what we can do about it. Mm. But what's important for people to know is that they're not powerless to to, to do deal with this stuff, right? This is what we're supporting them in doing is let's get your life back in alignment, right? These adaptive behaviors that you grew up thinking were, were mm -hmm. working for you are now maladaptive right. and they're causing you a lot of stress. Yeah. And that's why your microinflammation is high. And we'd like to get that down. And we can, if we work together to figure out what we're going to do to get you back living in alignment with your values and grounded and, and, you know, more of yourself, really. Yeah. You know, before we started this interview, we did not talk about time. Are you doing okay on time? Okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I told you we need three hours to get through all your questions. So. <laughs> I know <laughs> we do. Um, okay. Um, okay. Last time you and I had a brief conversation to just talk about if this was going to work or not. Um, and you mentioned ED and I assumed you meant Ehlers-Danlos, um, do do you, um was that what you meant by ed Ehlers different from erectile dysfunction sure yes I that's I what i was asking them. i treat okay. both of them so yeah which one do you want to talk about i think Ehlers danlos is one that i hear about more um as a a cause for for pain um so what's your what is your take on that cuz I, that one's really interesting to me. I'm, I'm just going to say this straight up. I'm probably going to offend some people, but the reason Ehlers-Danlos causes pain is because people are scared of it because doctors and clinicians, well-meaning, have created a lot of fear around the diagnosis. That's why okay. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome hurts. Okay. Um, I know barely anything about it, but can I can I ask a, an uninformed question? Okay. Um when I hear that, when I hear Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I think, oh, that person might easily fall over uh, because of hyperflexibility. Um, does that, do, 
first of all, is that is that um, that rumor that the way we understand Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is that a correct um, prediction of what other people are thinking when they have Ehlers-Danlos? This means I might have less stability and movement. Yeah, they're fragile. They're gonna. They feel like they're gonna fall apart. Like yeah. They're, they're, they're just like I've had people describe like they have a Barbie doll hip and it's just gonna pop out at any time, right? Like this is the these are the images and the thoughts that people get in their head. Yes. You know, okay. And your your podcast or your 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 brand is thought by thought coaching, right? So Healing, yeah, uh-huh. we're just talking about the the um, negative effects of someone's thoughts. Yeah, um, the 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 messages people get about their body when they've been labeled with Ehlers Danlos. Yeah, usually falsely, are are mm. in and of themselves enough to to cause a lot of physical symptoms, a lot of pain, a lot of fatigue, a lot of changes in motor coordination, motor control, like they actually lose the ability to function. Because of the fear around this. Because of Are we going to calling it a normal abnormality, like the hyperflexibility? Yeah. And I, I always debate, like we could get really nerdy and into this topic about flexibility, right? Like in PT okay. school, I'll just, I'll just take you down a little short aside here. In okay. PT school, we learned that there's a continuum of flexibility. Some people are very flexible. Some people are very stiff. Um, there's no normal. You could say someone's in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, neither of those are bad. Yeah. This person is going to be a good dancer, yoga, right? Rock climber. This person's going to be a good football player, power lifter, strength athlete. They're stiffer, right? Okay. Flexible. They have different, they have different skill sets, right? Their okay. bodies are made for different things. There's a difference between flexibility, how much your body moves and how well you can control that movement. So we talk about instability, hmm. right? Whether your body is stable, you can be very stiff and unstable because you're not controlling the movement that you have well. Yeah. Or whatever. Absolutely. You can be very flexible and be extremely stable. Think of a dancer or a Cirque du Soleil performer. These people have more body control than you or I will ever dream of. And they can move through four times as much range of motion as I can. Yeah. Right. So again, the correlate of pain mm. is very weak when it comes to mobility. It's the same as high arches and low arches. We're looking at the wrong problem. We're looking at the wrong thing yeah. in that case right? Yeah. Um, so, but, but again, people start to believe that, oh, I'm fragile and damaged. My body can't do things. What does this mean for the rest of my life? And you, the spiral, just the fear from those thoughts is enough to keep pain going. And then they're seeing specialists because now we have EDS specialists, yeah. of course. Now we have subcategories of EDS and now we're, people are making a living from this. And there's, you know, whether they intend to or not, there's a whole specialty area that depends on this being a diagnosis. Yeah. And so people will listen to me talking about it, sort of, you know, minimizing and invalidating it, which I'm sure offends people because yeah, you know how it is. Once you get a diagnosis, you're like, thank God I have an answer for why I feel this way. Right. Yeah. Even though, and then they get into a support group and then it becomes their identity and that's fine. You know, if the relief are- is short lived. Yeah, but if people are happy living that way, I don't want to judge that, but I want people to know that there's hope if they're not happy with with that diagnosis, if they're not happy with what they've learned and how they're feeling in their body. Yeah. Um, we know there's an alternative to this and they don't have to keep suffering if they're interested to learn more about it. 
Um, but at the extreme of EDS, at the extreme of flexibility, like if you have Marfan syndrome and you have the comorbidities with your vision and your heart and your, your valves and your heart, right? If there's a, if there's a medical comorbidity in that person that needs to be addressed medically. Okay. Right. Yeah. But this is the extreme of the continuum and people are, if this is the, if this is the most extreme flexibility, this is the most extreme stiffness. People here are being diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos, yeah. right? They're not even that flexible, but they have pain and they're good at yoga. And the doctor's like, you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Yeah. It's a diagnosis du jour. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad too. <laughs> um, yeah. I think for me, that makes me sad because I know people with that diagnosis that are attached it's, to it. It's, it's a sticky one. It's a real yeah. sticky one. And we probably don't have time to talk about identity. Um, pain is an identity on, on your podcast. I've talked about it before, but it's such an important um, for people that are overcoming symptoms. It's such an important thing to talk about directly and normalize that it's just so, it's so normal to, to be attached to what's familiar. It just yeah. is. It happens to all of us. Absolutely. Yep. We should do a whole nother episode on that. Secondary gains, identity and pain, that kind of conversation is. I don't even like to call it secondary gains because it kind of yeah. gets, it starts to feel a little judgmental. I, I know it does, but it was so helpful for me to understand. That, was it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. When I realized, oh, this is benefiting me. Um from not being judged. That was one, one of my secondary gains. Um, I was like, Oh, okay. I can see how this pain was useful in this way for me. So, mm -hmm. um, maybe if somebody had told me, asked me secondary gain, what are your secondary gains right up front? Maybe that would have been harder to uh, answer, yeah. but later on I found it helpful, but I, I, I hear you. I think I, I think I grew up like in the work comp system and, and that was a real negative, right? If, if you thought someone was trying to get money from their lawsuit and work their pain so that they would oh. pay out, when I think of secondary gains, I think of that. When I ask the question, I tend to say, there are 10 reasons that pain going away is going to be amazing for you in your life. Like, let's make that list. There are 10 reasons that the pain going away is going to be really hard. That's so good. Right? Yeah. And it's it's going to change things and things are going to be different. Let's make that list of why it's going to be really hard. And let's get really honest and clear about why, because it's normal. It happens to all of us with every change in our lives. If you move, there are 10 reasons that moving to that new place is going to be great. And there are 10 reasons that moving is going to be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? It's just human nature. I love that. And I think you hit on something right before you said that of, um, secondary gains, um, uh, people assuming that that's a conscious secondary gain versus something that's you're subconsciously getting. Like in no way was I intentionally using pain to gain this secondary thing. Um, but when I looked at that, like you're saying that list, I realized, oh, it's protecting me from these other things. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, and it's great. It's great. Let's talk about it. Like if we don't talk yeah. about it, then we're not going to move much. Right. So Anyway, yeah. there, there's our little short bit on identity. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so let's hit, um, does aging, does aging 
cause pain. I just did a video on, are you a victim or the vomit poster, a victim of um, imaging? Medical imaging technology. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. Um, what's, your, what's your take on aging? Should we be expecting as we get older that pain is going to get more intense and it's just part of life? Or what's your take on that? Um, it's a great question. I thought about that before we got on because I think it's an important topic and I wanted to kind of get clear in my head about about my my feelings about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, a lot like a lot of these things we're talking about, there there is going to be a correlation, even if it's very weak. Okay. Yeah. Right? We know there's tissue change that's normal that happens as a product of aging, right? Like wrinkles and gray hair, but those don't hurt. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we see that come from aging in the physical body do not have to hurt, right? Yeah. If it's arthritis, if it's sort of the, the cartilage changes we see in the joints, if it's you getting progressively, having progressively less muscle mass or progressively less bone density, those things don't have to hurt, yeah. right? So we separate the, the syndrome from the symptoms. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I like to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think the stronger predictor of pain as we get older is explained by having more life experience, having more stress, right? We know from the research that the times in life when people have the most stress are 30 to 60. Yeah. Right. The prevalence goes down for a lot of people when they stop that super busy phase of life. Yeah. They're overwhelmed and raising kids and having careers and, mm -hmm. you know, strapped financially. Um, so I think there's a much stronger correlation with people's psychology and their anxiety and their depression levels than there is with anything physically happening in their body. And so I'm a big, like age is a mindset person. I'm turning mm -hmm. 50 next month. And I really try to, to live based on that. And it worked great for me in my forties. I feel better in my forties than I did physically, you know, even in my thirties and twenties. Yeah. Hopefully, because I know more and I'm a little wiser about how I live my life. But I, th I think the other thing that I'm learning as I do more of this work with people as they get older is, you know, I always assume growing up, like retirement would be amazing. Like you get to retire and then you don't have to work and you have money and you can travel and do whatever you want. Turns out like retirement's pretty stressful for most people. Yeah. And you know, if nothing else, because they lose a sense of meaning and purpose, which is probably one of the biggest reasons that retirement is really hard. They start to feel like they don't matter anymore. They're invisible. Not to mention you've seen your parents pass away a lot of the time as you get older, right? There's a lot of grief. You're, you're sort of accumulating life stress. You're accumulating traumatic experiences over time. Mm -hmm. And if they go unprocessed, and a lot of us don't have the skills to do that, Yep. Right? We learn that if they go in process, then they really do start to accumulate and show up as physical pain in our body. And then as we get older, we also then are faced with our own end of life, our own vulnerability, our own longevity. And then that theme is really up for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's no wonder that they have a lot of physical pain as they get older. It's a mix of the, the, the phase of life the stress they've accumulated and the lack of skills to be able to navigate those things with resilience. I think that's what predicts pain and with age. I love that. Um, to your point, just one data point. I currently have a client that uh, pain came on day they retired, the very day they retired. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there, there's that great question earlier, right? It's like, why, why now? Like, why is the pain starting now? You've had this body, this 65 year old body for a long time. Why it doesn't make any sense that it's something with your body, right? Mm -hmm. These things happen. The changes in our body happen at a glacial pace. It's not like one day, suddenly your joint is degenerative, you know? Right. That's a, that's since you were 20, it's been happening. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yep. Our right. pain I, I shouldn't like, come on, boom, hit. Yeah, unless there's an injury, unless there's something obvious. Right. Absolutely. You know, like my like my 65-year-old client that got hit by a wave and it, it forced her legs into the splits and she tore her hamstring, right? Like there's bruising, there's swelling. You can see that something happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Um, okay. Um, any other, any other, um, things that we, that you hear commonly in PT or a traditional PT would um, think is the cause of pain that, that you feel listeners might resonate, or it would be helpful for them to hear a different perspective. Oh man, there's so many things to talk about. (laughs) I think, you know, my, my colleagues tend to go back to the body. Like we understand pain science, most of us now, um, there, there's still sort of a really strong bias towards the body. Um, even if we're looking through our brain oriented lens, and sometimes that's the right thing to do to treat the body. But I think the one thing that's missing, and I know you do this really well is to get into the emotional content. Yeah. And a lot of people never get there because they feel better before that, or they don't want to do it. But I really feel like that's a real missing component when we're talking about pain and it's, it's a skill deficit for a lot of us, myself included. Yeah. Um, one that we didn't learn. I think the consequences of not um, having that skill are really high when it comes to even microinflammation, which we talked about before. Sure. Or navigating the stresses of life that are inevitable, right? Um, I think this is the skill that pain gives us an opportunity to wake up and start to say, wow, I really need to start paying attention to my emotions and my feelings because that's information about what I need to do in my life, right? Like if we leave with a, with a series of exercises and stretches and thinking that we need to get stronger and be more physically fit, right? That's not, that's not serving anyone. So I just, I don't know. I like to encourage people to advocate for themselves when they have pain and they go see a physio a physical therapist to really try to find someone that's pain science informed, but more than that is, you know, emotionally informed mm. and it's going to bring, we're going to get out of their silo and bring those ideas into the treatment plan. Yeah. Uh, it's more effective and it sets people on a better course for the future. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um. Okay. Two more things. One is, um, I have a question from a listener and yeah. then, um, and then I just want to give some space for you to talk about what you're doing and how people can get a hold of you and that sort of thing. Here is the question. I'm really struggling with the following. Every time I work out, I get a headache a few hours later. Should I try to ignore and suffer through the pain of a headache or take meds that will help me so that I can get relief and relax? It just doesn't seem to go away if I try to ignore it. 
It can drag on for days if I don't take meds. How should I can recondition my mind to expect a different result to work out for the out when the last 12 years I've had an automatic response of a headache after working out? Yeah, there are a lot of questions in that one question. We didn't really get to talk about condition responses and predictive coding that much. I know that was on your list. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can talk about that as we go. I guess my first question are, is, are, you know, are those the only two options to ignore it or to take medicine, right? We, we know there are more options than that. Mm -hmm. um, it, you can't ignore a headache. You can't really ignore pain, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's almost impossible to ignore. So if you try to ignore it, the brain just turns it up louder. Um, the other end of the continuum is catastrophizing and focusing on it all the time, which we also know isn't particularly helpful. Yeah. So where we, we try to get people is to somewhere in the center where they're able to be outcome independent. The goal isn't to get rid of the pain. It can be with the pain and they can relate to it in a different way with a new mindset, right? Yeah. And watch it and somatic track it. Um, medication is the, all the biomedical interventions. Uh, I don't throw those out, right? Some mind body clinicians are purists. They're like, they're like reductionist in the same way some of the biomedical models reductionist. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that serves anyone. So I agree. If someone's in a lot of pain, like let's get you some relief because otherwise you're not gonna be able to do the work anyway. Yeah. So until we can get you understanding better why you're having headaches, yeah, let's continue to do medication. I'm, I'm not averse to people having surgery sometimes if, if it's gonna get them quicker relief. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just a placebo. Mm -hmm. you know? As long mm -hmm. as the as long as the risks aren't that great, or an injection, or whatever medical intervention we think is going to give them a quick change, that way they have the bandwidth to do the other more emotionally oriented, or whatever whatever the other work is, or get back in their body, right? So yeah. without that barrier. So yeah, take take the medicine, and then the work is how do we find a way to be outcome independent. That can look like a lot of things, right? That can look like getting better at reconceptualizing the symptoms and watching them. It can actually be more along the lines of giving the pain less attention and making your life bigger and filling your life up with things that you love, mm -hmm. figuring out what about your life isn't working. Okay, let's jettison some of those things. Let's change some of your patterns and let's add some things that really feel like they're missing. And we see that in the process of people making their life bigger, the pain gets much smaller. Yeah. So that's like, let's not focus on the pain. Let's, let's not try to get it to go away. Let's focus on your life instead. And regarding right? her um, workout, would you, um, would you have a more a graded um, exposure kind of uh, approach to this opposed to doing a whole workout, having the headache, doing that again and again, and waiting for it to change? Would you... Yeah. Yeah, talk yeah about I think, you know, th this gets into condition responses, right? People say, every time I do this, I get this result. Yeah. Well, that's just human beings. Yeah. Our brain is a predicting machine. It's doing it outside of our conscious awareness. If this, then this, and it will continue to do that unless we do something to break that cycle, unless yeah. we interrupt it. But people will say, well, it must be structural because it's happening every time, right? Right. Yeah. That's not really, that's not really how we understand pain now or symptoms now. So the goal is to try to break the conditioning. The goal is to try to break the prediction. Yeah. And um, just to, to quote the NOI group again, they talk about how the brain is expecting a certain sensory package, they call it. Mm -hmm. And as long as the brain keeps getting that sensory package, it'll just say, cool, we're, we're on track. 
We're just going to keep doing this every day at this time, every time after this workout. To introduce a new sensory package, we have to do something totally different, yeah. right? So that the brain almost is surprised, right? Mm-hmm. Mistakes and surprises. This is what interrupts predictive coding and condition responses. So we're trying to do something to introduce a new sensory package where the brain is like, whoa, that was different. I didn't. You know, that violates what I was expecting. Yeah. And two things make that hard. One is it's uncomfortable when that happens, right? Just the idea of doing something different could be uncomfortable. Okay. And it takes energy, right? The brain's in this efficient pattern of exercise, headache, cool, efficient. Mm -hmm. It takes energy to do something different, right? And so it's hard to do, but- your, your questions before we met, one was, you know, can you do it slowly over time through this graded process? Yes, we can do it through repetition, introducing new experiences and small in, uh, bits with low intensity, or we can do it boom all at once with some huge event that interrupts the predictive pattern and yeah. brain upgrades the prediction and suddenly pain is no longer helpful or necessary to protect that person. Right. This is all a bit abstract. And this is where I think it gets fun to work with people to get creative, to say, how can we interrupt this prediction, this, this paired response? It's not going to be going back to that same gym and doing the same workout that you've been doing, right? You're going to get the same result every time. So we need to change your thought, your experience and your feeling. (laughs) And we, that, that process often starts with visualization or mental rehearsal. Yeah. Because if it's too hard to do it for real, then let's do it in your in your in your mind. Your brain doesn't know the difference between mentally rehearsing it and doing it for real. So let's use that to our advantage. Yeah. To start to introduce a new thought, behavior, and feeling. Yeah. Right. So that when you make a plan to go do it, you have a different experience. You have a different outcome. Um, I, I think that's one of the most fun part of the processes um for people and when they start to see it working yeah sometimes within a really pretty short period of time it's really exciting do you do you find that like for some people including myself um there was more than one uh area of my body that had a condition response of pain um do you find that um it's perfectly normal for people to have uh one pain point go away but some others are hold on they they're a little stickier um uh versus all the pain kind of in all areas of the body getting better yeah for sure yeah you see sometimes they come on in one order and they go away in the reverse order Mm -hmm. right or sometimes there's one symptom that's a little more sticky that's like the original the 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 original symptom which led to fear, which then led to the other symptoms coming on. So we've reduced fear enough that the other symptoms have gone away, but now the one symptom is still there because we haven't maybe gotten to the emotional content yet, or we haven't fully made meaning from why that symptom, or we haven't changed the thing in that person's life that really needs to be shifted, um, or it just needs more time and patience. You know, urgency and pressure is never never helpful, never helpful. <laughs> but yeah. it's just like, being patient with it sometimes is important. I always say that everybody has a last symptom. I had definitely had a last symptom 
and that's just that's just how it works, right? So it doesn't have to be scary that there's there's one thing that's kind of sticky. Yeah, yeah. Anything okay? So anything else before we talk about what you're doing, where you are? Um, anything else that you want? There are lots of things. I know. There's so many, there's so many things to talk about. You know, I, I appreciate that you brought some questions because I think it's nice to hear it right in in someone's specific context. Mm. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. we're talking about these things that it can seem a little bit vague yeah. and hard to understand um, yeah. until you you really start to to get very specific about what a person needs to do. I always say that that you know tr tr treating pain, tr treating chronic pain um, is pretty simple in that once you get to know somebody, it gets to be pretty clear what they need to do. Right. But it's not, it's not easy. So mm -hmm. my, my colleagues, it's not easy in that it takes energy and it's uncomfortable for people like yeah. the process, as you know, um, mm -hmm. the strategies aren't that complicated, which I love. They're not expensive. You can do a lot of them yourselves. This is about empowering people to be their own self healers, to mm -hmm. find mastery of their own bodies right? Mm -hmm. To know their own bodies and be in their body. That's important. I, I don't want them to rely on me for that. I want, I want, that's what I'd want for me. I'd want to know how to master my own body. Right. Yep. And my own experience and be the creator of my own life. So I want, I want to, that's what I want for other people. Um, there's a lot of talk in the, especially in the pain science world about pain being really complex and pain being really complicated. And every time I hear that message from a clinician mm. or a scientist, it makes me cringe mm. because it's it the last thing, it's the last thing people need to hear. And yeah. that's not, it's not true. You know, it's complex because there are millions of us and everybody's pain is different and everybody needs a different solution. Right. So in that way, pain is complex, but it's my job to bear the complexity and to distill it down and simplify it for you mm -hmm. different from you. Mm -hmm. from them yeah everybody has a different recipe as rachel's oftenest says everybody has a different formula and what is your formula and so in that way mm -hmm. i want people to know that it really does end up being pretty elegantly straightforward and simple even though it's not without challenge sometimes yeah awesome that's it that's what i want people to know that's a good thing. That's a good thing for people to know going into this healing journey or in the middle of it. Okay. So tell us about where you are, what you're doing, if people can work with you or programs you have, all that stuff. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm a clinician. So I have my own sort of one man show, small private practice, which I love. Okay. Um, I love my work. It informs everything else. I, I couldn't even have this conversation if I don't think if I wasn't seeing patients every day and, mm -hmm. and learning from them and growing yeah. myself and, you know, learning about myself through them. Um, so I love that work. I consult with a startup um, called Lynn Health, L-I-N dot health. And we're trying to scale. This, this platform is fantastic because we created it from the beginning with fidelity to these ideas. We weren't messing around with coping and managing, right? Some of these old ideas. And we really wanted to bring this model um, and scale it so it was more accessible to people. So it's all virtual, you can do it on your phone. You, it's coach-centered, so you have a guide, you can communicate with them, it's a real person. Mm -hmm. And they'll they'll walk you through the 
the the treatment strategies, whatever is right for you, whatever is your recipe, right? They'll walk you through the process. Okay. So we have insurance coverage now in four states, and we're hoping that that's going to grow. And that's huge, right? Because that's huge. Yeah. It makes it really accessible to people. So I'm really excited about this company. They're really smart and they really care, and they're building an incredible product. Cool. Um, so I consult with them and I mentor the coaches. I'm like behind the coaches. So, um, Okay. People sometimes ask, can I work with you, Charlie? It's like, you know, I, I don't work with people directly, but all the coaches, I can say the coaching team is amazing. It's mm -hmm. like this learning organism and they just get better and better and better because of each other. So it's really, as a, as a one-man show, it's been really fun to see mm -hmm. how, we, how we grow and we work together. Anyway, um, yeah. I teach with Dr. Howard Schubiner. This is a course for clinicians. I said earlier how hard it is to get clinicians to shift their belief yeah. and trust that there's something so incredible on the other side of unlearning some of the stuff they learned in school, even new grads aren't mm. coming out of school with this information. So yeah. I'm very passionate about teaching clinicians and mentoring clinicians. After the course, we have a consultation group that I run every week where we continue to, to learn together. Yeah. It's again, part of that like continuous learning organism. We're all growing together. So I do that with the clinicians after our course. And then I'm building a course for athletes right now that's specifically for a person that's trying to figure out, understand, unlearn their pain. And it doesn't have to be the highest level professional athlete in the world, although that's that's kind of, I wanted to speak to that population because they're not hearing this message. Yeah, okay. Anyone, and I, I, people, I've called people an athlete in my treatment room and they've broken down crying. Because when you're in pain, you don't feel like an athlete. Mm. Mm. You've and lost like, yeah and i'm like of course you're an athlete you're a human being mm. you were an athlete five years ago of course you're an athlete it just went dormant but it's very emotional for people so when i say i'm building a course for athletes it's really building a course for people who who really are motivated to be back in their bodies to go through this process of unlearning their symptoms and get active again um, whatever that means for them it could be recreational or it could be professional it doesn't matter um, and in the process, hopefully learn something about themselves and, and gain some emotional skills and grow in their lives and improve their relationships. Right. It's, it's really, um, it's really a journey through this course is going to be about 12 weeks, once a week for 12 weeks. And it's really a journey, um, that I'm going to take people through. Oh, so I'm goodness. really excited about it. Wow. There's a, there's a lot of options there. That's, that's great. Yeah. One for clinicians, Lynn health. And athletes. In health and athletes. And then some consulting and some talking to people on who have great podcasts like you. Just trying to spread the word, you know, trying to to just get it out there. So I appreciate having a, you creating a forum for that. And, and yeah. um, when it changes yeah. your life, you just want everybody to know about it. Yeah. It, isn't it? Isn't it yep. true? So you can't not. It's so meaningful. I have a client I'm working with right now who keeps asking like, so, so Charlie, people really get better doing this. Like you really see people get better, you know? Yes. And, and part of me is like a little offended when I hear that, you know, it's like, of course, of course people get better, but I just want them to hear these stories like from you and, and just trust that on the other side of this is something great. So thank you for giving back and thank you for doing the work that you do to, to spread the word. It's really important. Yeah. You too, all back at you. 
Okay. Well, I will put all your info in the show notes and um, maybe we'll do this again someday. We'll, we'll finish off the three hours, do another hour and a half. <laughs> be great. I loved, I'd lo- I loved your questions. So thanks for sharing those. And I'll share those two videos about return to exercise, graded exposure um, for you, for your viewers. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, thank you for being here very much for your expertise, for sharing with us, encouraging us. Um, And thanks to the watchers. I will see you guys next week.